Hello folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. It's Monday, October 30th, and I'm very happy to be back with you for another week of daily shows Monday through Thursday. Today, I'm here as usual, at least, with Integral Life Editor and my main bro here, uh, Corey DeVos, who is the Editor-in-Chief of Integral Live and Integral Life. Hey, Corey, how you doing? Good, man. How you doing? I'm excited to uh, talk about cheeseburger emojis with you all day. <laughs> cool. Uh, uh, and today, we're also welcoming a special guest who is actually, if you think about it, our host, and that is the co-founder of Integral Life, Rob Smith. And uh, I just want to say in quick introduction that in the last couple of years, Rob has been producing some of the best integral thinking I've seen, really, about what's happening in, a, happening in our culture in terms of fragmentation, polarization, and ultimately the election of Donald Trump. And Rob, you've really helped me to integrally contextualize this stuff in a way that I hadn't before. So I appreciate that and want to thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, cool. So uh, by the way, and I want to put this out uh, up front here, a little word from our sponsor, Rob and Integral Life will be hosting a four-day conference where we all get to hammer out a more integral view of our wild and crazy times. It's called the What Now Conference. It will be held at the beautiful Omni Resort here between Boulder and Denver. And it's over New Year's, Friday, December 29th to Monday the 1st, four days. And I would encourage you to join us at the What Now Conference. Yeah, and we, we actually have an early bird discount that is going to expire on November 1st. Uh, so if you want to save $600 off of your ticket, now's the time to do it. Cool. All right. So, Rob, here's what I, I want to lay out what you've helped me do, okay? And then we can take it from there. Now, what I've gotten from you and your writings in The Great Divide, The Great Release, and the videos you've been doing is you've helped me to more fully appreciate uh, a new pattern, you know, and I'm a pattern guy, you know, and most right. integralists are. Us, yeah, us integralists love our patterns, don't we? We love our patterns. In fact, one time I asked Ken Wilbur, so what's your genius? What's your main gift? And he said, pattern recognition. Hmm. And I thought that was a pretty good answer. So anyway, this is a new pattern, and, it's, and I've seen versions of it knocking around the integral world, and... Uh, but it hasn't attracted me in, in the way some of the other patterns have. But what it is, is a pattern out of systems theory. And it shows us that the evolution of cultures, the growth of cultures, and we can even see this in terms of the growth of each of us as an individuals. We go through phases. And there's a growth phase where we grow and we you know, gain new complexity and new capacities and stuff. And we succeed at that. And then you know, nothing succeeds like success. So we keep doing what we did to get successful and we get complacent and we kind of overdo it and we start to stagnate. And then we stagnate and we get all bloated and constipated and cranky. We get all sweaty. And just when we think we can't stand it another minute, we have a great blowout or a great meltdown or as you talk about, a great release which no. I love that term. And then if we survive that, we go on to reorganize and start a new growth phase. And in many ways, our new growth phase is as a new person mm. or as a new society. We have become bigger. We have grown. We contain more. We have new wisdom. And um, so that's the pattern. And according to that pattern, uh, what we see in our current culture is that we are here in the U.S. somewhere between stagnation and release, the end of stagnation, beginning of release. And, and, I, and one of the, the things that's been most helpful to me is that uh, you're, you're teaching on this idea of overconnectedness and that one of the symptoms of stagnation is that systems become overconnected. Mm. And it's like, the checks and balances start working too well. We get so good at blocking the other guy that nobody can move the ball, but you know, we're all about playing defense. And um, so that's where I'd like to start is, first of all, 
how'd I do, <laughs> you know, in terms of the theory. And secondly, help us understand this concept of overconnectedness and how you see it manifesting in our current politics. Yeah, I'm happy to. And, uh, and thanks for the kind words. And uh, it was a, a very good synopsis. You know, from the complexity sciences, we see that all systems, as you say, they go through cycles of uh, rejuvenation, reorganization, growth, and then there's a certain amount of stagnation that sets in as the strategies that got you there become this, this sort of the, the stagnant strategy. But that doesn't help you adapt to the changing world any longer. And so what happens is um, that stagnation builds up. And now if we're talking about societies, really, in a way, we're talking about power. Because what happens as a, as a society finds a winning strategy through the growth phase, and then as it moves into the conservation phase, there are winners and losers. And, and, and the winners who... The, the winners during the rapid growth phase um, have their strategies that have worked. They've now gotten their power. And what do they do during the conservation phase? Well, they double down to make sure that that power cannot go away. Now, this conservation right. phase is what, what I'm talking about is sort of where we sort of coast in our success or we consolidate our success. Right. Yeah. Before yeah, the right. stagnation. Yeah. So you go, you go into this, this stagnation uh, increasingly stagnant phase where the, the holders of power are doubling down on that. And what it's doing is it's preventing the overall system from adapting to the changing world they're finding itself in. And so you get this real tug of war, this real sort of internal tension inside the social body um, that has to do with the fact that, um, you know, it can't, it, it, it can no longer adapt quite as well. And And, and my argument really has been that since the 70s, the early 70s, we have seen basically the over, as you say, the overconnectedness or the consolidation of too much power in too few hands. In particular, we've had the power of the culture dominated in the hands of a few in the cultural left elite. So this is the leftist elite that have had the cultural power. Uh, for the last 40 years. And of course, the religion of equality has, has grown up um, behind that. Uh, it's a religion of, of basically forced equality and multiculturalism. And on the right, we've seen the consolidation of capital power. And, and this, is, this is the power of the, of the rich right. So you have the left elite and the rich right. And, and both of these um, are this entire consolidation of power amongst these two groups, which are then putting the whole nation and all of its policies to work on their behalf in a form of suboptimization, which we'll talk about in a, in a minute if you want, is um, is where populism is reacting to. The popular, the fundamentally populist grows out of the discontentedness that says we no longer want that power concentration. Um, the 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 right uses it to react against the cultural dominance of the left, and the left uses it to react against the money dominance of the right uh, in the form of both Bernie Sanders and Trump. Yeah, and I love what you said about uh, Bernie Sanders and Trump, that Bernie Sanders is the guy that comes along and decides to fight the concentration of wealth in, uh, uh, in the rich. And Trump comes along to fight the hegemony of the cultural left. Actually, right. he promised to fight both on both yeah. fronts. Right. Uh, he's actually doing the first where he's going up against the left uh, and that Hillary didn't fight either one of them. That's right. And I, and as I contend, I think that's the, beyond all the other stuff, I think that's the fundamental reason she lost. You, you have to, in a populist era at the end of a, of a conservation phase and when we're entering a release and we're seeking, I mean, fundamentally what the system is seeking is a reorganization. It's seeking a new kind of operating system with new moments of reform. Uh, you have to pick a fight with the stagnant powers. If you don't, you're not going to win. And, and so what the populist movement really is signaling in a very frankly rational way is that the system is, if the system is stagnant and the, and the power needs to be broken up, power monopolies need to be broken up. And a new era of reform needs to take hold. And the first party that is able to do this in a, in a sort of a genuinely progressive way, not, not horribly regressive the way we're seeing with Trump, um, will, will be able to enact an era of reform that is not dissimilar from um, the basically post-1920 period. 
because yeah. we see very similar patterns that we could talk about um, going back 150 years. Well, just to bring it into current headlines, um, so I hear this morning on Morning Joe that the tax reform plan that the Republicans have been talking about is basically they've given up on reform. There's just too much political pushback from now that this morning, the Homeowners Association and everybody wants their uh, tax breaks and favorable treatment. And there's an army of um, lobbyists who see to that and fund our Congress. And so now it's just going to be a tax cut. And it's going to be a tax cut that adds another trillion dollars to the debt. And so that's not a win. You know, that's, and that's, uh, sounds like an overconnected system mm. where just nothing can happen. Yeah, recall, this is actually a good moment to come back to this concept of suboptimization. So in a, in a complex system, and it's, all, it's really holonic dynamics. And when we're thinking about holons, the, the part-whole dynamics of a system, um, suboptimization is when the part hijacks the purpose, function, and structure of the whole and basically puts it to work on its behalf. And we're seeing this all, every day we see an example of this, whether it be the EPA that basically allows the, uh, the, the industry to set tomorrow's regulations on toxic chemicals, classic example of suboptimization, meaning industry, this one industry, putting this entire regulatory apparatus of the nation to work in order to boost profits. Um, and what we're seeing in tax reform, and it's been pretty clear that this would be the case the past few years, if you just looked at the money flows of the, of the campaign going back to how the GOP finances its elections, that the, the, rich, um, the rich right that we just talked about was basically going to suboptimize tax policy in order to borrow uh, using the national debt and put it right into their pockets in the form of a wealth transfer. And they're going to use the anger and, in a sense, dispossession of the, the populist right, the Trump voter, the average Trump voter, to do it. And, you know, I think, you know, ironically, I think the average Trump voter probably sees this and I think it's going to piss them off even more at the end of the day. Um, and it's only going to increase the alienation as we head towards a, a, a real systemic release. Yeah. So this morning, just to borrow another headline, uh, we had the three indictments released by Robert Mueller. And we have this Russia probe. Uh, and how do you see this or how do you contextualize, contextualize this in your theory? Well, I think yeah, I think this is a good example of sort of the, the macro sociology of, of altitudes, frankly. I mean, what we have since, since the American Revolution, we have an, an increasing embodiment uh, of orange in the lower quadrants. We have norms, we have the rule of law, we have statutes, we have, we have a constitution, not just in America, but throughout the, the Western democratic world. And really, for the last few decades, and, and truly, especially with the rise of Trump, what we have is we have, a, a, a at best, amber and largely red power cartel that is willing to subvert the orange rule of law, norms, customs, and establishment, um, and, and institutions almost at every step. Now, who are uh, these? And so what this... Sorry, go ahead. Who, who are these people? What, who are you speaking of here? The well, Amber, I'm talking about, Amber. in particular, the Trump administration. Yeah, okay. I'm talking about, I mean, the fact that they attack freedom of press, the fact that they attack right. the rule of law, the fact that they attack the Justice Department or the intelligence community, these are all, this is all classic moves that red and early Amber dictatorial authoritarian regimes use to try to attack orange. And historically, it's just always been the case. We saw tons of examples of it through the 20th century. We just never saw it really as prominently as we did here in the United States. And so for the last year and a half, the, the, most, of the, uh, most of the liberal orange world, and I don't mean liberal meaning left, I mean just post-orange enlightenment, post-enlightenment world, which is, you know, hundreds of millions of people have been aghast at what they've seen as the attack on Orange for the past 18 months. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened this morning is Orange fought back. I mean, Orange basically is now 
um, fighting back in a real way. Keep in mind, though, that orange, the processes of orange take more time. And so the fact that we had to wait a year, we have higher evidentiary standards. We have, we, we have to honor the, rule, the very rule of law that's trying to be, to be fought. And so the time cycles are different. So it's a lot more frustrating to be engaged in this. Yeah, right on. So uh, if the theory is correct, we're heading for a great release. And, um, you know, I, I know part of the nature of evolution is that it is novel and that we can't predict it and it's always surprising. So with that in mind, um, what do you see, Rob? I mean, is, is Trump the human wrecking ball enough to himself embody the great release? <laughs> or are we going to have to, I mean, typically in history, as you point out in your papers, the great release have usually been a war, you know, something that really is a blow to the, you know, body politic. Yeah. And what do you see? Well, I, I won't be surprised if he gets us in a war for instrumental reasons, regardless. I've been saying that for about a year and a half, that I think he gets us in a war before the midterms. Um, I, I believe me, no, I would love to be wrong. I'd love to be completely and and I just love to whiff at that ball. Um, yeah. it's just a terrible prediction to have to, to, to stand by. But I think from an instrumental minds, from given the systemic dynamics, given his, given the instrumentality of how that, how that plays, um, and, and given his own particular to personality disorders, um, I think that that's, you know, more and more likely, especially as the, as the heat turns up. Yeah. Um, and, and here we could hope for an orange pushback, too, from the generals. Um, That's right. From the military. Right. And, um, and here's an example. Of where, men, you know, frankly, it, it was it was it was like it was like orange. It was orange thinking in the Constitution and these these other early documents, but but with late amber technology. And this is a place where we're really out of date, isn't it? is we have a president with almost unilateral power to end the species as we know it. Know. That is a fundamental failure to modernize at Orange, modernize and liberalize what we know about the failures of human psychology in terms of power. No, it's so true. And especially when, you know, it, it, constitutionally, it requires Congress to declare war. Mm. But... You know, that's just been de facto neutered. Yeah, really uh, has. Because, you know, there is an argument that a chief executive needs to act quickly and legislature is, is meant to act slowly and um, the commander in chief has to have that kind of latitude. Uh, but you're right. It is a terrifying uh, possibility that uh and, and with trump's psychology uh, I, I i'm with you i i don't think there's any internal structure of his psyche that would slow him down mm -hmm. on I that agree. but uh so this is where we have to count on orange you know? so you know in terms of the release i mean i think a, i think a war uh is, is certainly a, a plausible plausible uh possibility but beyond that i i think that um a lot i mean so I have a couple, I guess a couple of thoughts. The, the first is that the Republican Party as we know it is, is gone. It's dead. And I don't just mean because of the hijacking of Trump by that. I mean, give it 10 or 15 years, the Republican Party as we know it dies. It, it literally dies with, with sort of an entire generation of, of angry, older white guys, you know, dying. And oh, what's got to that is sophisticated, <laughs> uh, integrated conservatism. Uh, and so that, that's the first piece. The Democrats are set to absolutely clean house over the coming generation as millennials wake up to their voting power. Um, so I hope, as, as a sophisticated conservative myself, I, I hope the right grows up in a significant way over the next 10 or 15 years. That's, that's the first piece. The second piece is that the Democrats, despite that tailwind, the Democrats will continue to lose. If they talk about culture, they lose. If they talk about uh, if they talk about anti-Trump, they lose. Both of those things will not win them elections. What they have to what they have to move towards is they have to move towards jobs. They have to move to an economic populism that can recapture the center and, frankly, cauterize the polarity that the hard right uses to stoke their base. And the more the Democrats can do that, 
the more they can recapture the center. They have to do that. And I, and I hope they do it because um, I, I think it'll help, you know, the, the rejuvenation of, of, of all of this. But there's no doubt that with AI and automation and all this other stuff, we really need, we're going to need a significant up-leveling of the way we're thinking about the, the nature of work and, and sort of economic sustainability in our individual lives um, as policy over the next 10 or 15 years. It's going to be critical. You think Bernie could have beat Trump? You know, in retrospect, I do. Uh, you know, I was, I, I did not think that at the time. I was wrong. Um, yeah. I, I think in with retrospect, you. he probably could have. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, the, um, the, uh, the I, I love what you say in your papers, too, about uh, the really important uh, part that leadership plays. You know, that somebody has to come along or people have to come along who are able and willing to articulate this. Mm. Uh, Bernie was and did. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I, I don't know who, who you see it out there. Is there anybody who's caught your eye in terms of? Well, I mean, way? I think, uh, I, I think that from Biden seems like he has the most possibility today to basically say, I'm, I'm a credible leader who has integrity, the country knows on a national level, and I am working class, and that that's a trustable proposition, and that he mm-hmm. could actually get us back to a position of, he could, he could claim the mantle of economic populism in the center in a way which I think could easily win the center, some of the moderate right, and a lot of the left. Now, now the problem the Democrats have right now is they're, they're, they're captured by a, a kind of social hysteria and, or a social justice hysteria in some, in, for some, in some ways for good reason. But they have to be really, really careful to not allow how exercised they feel to become the very thing that stands in the way of them winning over the next you know, four to six years. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm afraid that it, I'm afraid that it will actually. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, the, the antipathy between the, I don't know what far extreme, or the, you know, the, 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 the most 20% of the left and the hard 20 to 30% of the right is, um, we're not over that anytime soon, are we? No, I don't. I don't think so. Particularly as you have um, growing up on both sides. As I said, I think that the the left is going to have to face the contradictions of its of its of its cultural philosophy, frankly. And the right's going to have to do the same thing with its with its philosophy on on money in the twenty first century. And both mm-hmm. both are trying to maintain their dominant hegemonic philosophies in the cultural and capital spheres respectively and not face the contradictions of those, but both have to, because what, what, what the country is saying, what people are saying, what the populist movement is about is your contradictions no longer work for me. Yeah. I don't want the thought policing of, of the overbearing left. And I do not want the wealth concentration of a neoliberal right, which financializes everything in society. Yeah, well, it's like, um, I I made a note, I thought I really liked what you said here, um, that America has been um, put in the service of the world state. And and that's a critique that you can make from the left and the right. Yeah. That it has been put in the, 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 you know, this is Steve Bannon's right. The working class and middle class have been outsourced to the global economy. And if it's an unfettered global economy, you would be crazy not to make your products in Mm -hmm. Malaysia or India or whatever. So there's that. And then the world state in terms of a cultural uh, uh, mindset that is multicultural and leaves behind the uh, sort of... uh, the, 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 the part that the traditionalists know, the piece of the truth that they have, yeah. that there actually is something special about America, that there is something that is 
maybe an enduring polarity between male and female. They're not the same. That there's different ways. That that um, that that the sexual revolution is maybe not maybe two cheers for the sexual revolution, you know. But there's a significant downside, and that as integralists, we want to be able to expand and breathe in the piece of the truth of both of those. Mm. And of course, the left. You know, the social justice, there, there is internalized racism, classism, all of that stuff that they talk about. That's territory that needs to be uh, plowed. Mm. You know, that, that, that needs to be brought online. And so as integralists, we want to move forward with a sort of a bigger identity that includes the best of both of those and leaves behind the contracted, you know, monoperspectival part of both of those. And that's our challenge. Yeah, I love that. I love the way you said that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, how do you think we're doing as integralists? I mean, you know, what what do you see as um, you know how integralists are making sense of this, um, moving forward, trying to create the you know the new territory that we're moving into? What do you yeah. think? Well, on the one hand, I'd say that you know. The, there's a, there's very little I think that you know in a way the distinctions we have at our disposal um, amongst the broad integral mindset haven't been able to account for in our in our moment in a way and that's a really great testament I think for this point of view is that there is a way to actually make sense of it um, not only at the leading not only right at the leading edge of the existing mainstream pundits but frankly ahead of them um, I mean the mainstream pundits. Mm-hmm. On the left and the right can learn a lot by listening to what we're talking about. Yep. Uh, and th- they seem to be a few years behind us in each way. Now, now the good news also is that they do also seem to be catching up. Like there's a, there's a real leading edge of the mainstream that's getting really smart because they have to. I mean, that's the nature of these breakdowns is that both on the right and the left, people are going, well, wait a minute. This doesn't, we have to face our own contradictions here. And so from within their own movements, they rise up and start challenging each other. So that, that part's cool. But there's no doubt that the integral movement is, is, is not a powerful one in the sense of its, its uh, sort of traditional institutional forms of power. It, it doesn't have huge audiences. It doesn't have political representation. It doesn't have 25 billionaires who are, who are devoted integralists. It doesn't have a political action movement. I mean, there's a lot of things that it, it doesn't, doesn't do partly because it's very, very young. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's less than a few decades old. It's just, it's just an infant in terms of a social movement. Um, and part of it is I think we've rightly had a certain modesty and conservatism about not wanting to, get too far ahead of ourselves in knowing how to wield the, the powerful distinctions and sociology that exists within our own community. I, I've made this point before, and I've, I've actually made it for years, is that we have to be really careful that we don't try to spread this too quickly because we know that it can become just as much, uh, distinctions can become just as abusive as anything. And, and we've seen that even within our own community, sort of distinctions become a become weapons they become weaponized yeah. you know, integral no, mindset becomes weaponized we're still human up here at the yeah. Yeah. It's, so, it's so frustrating and such yeah. a, such a disappointment <laughs> you know but really it's in a way part of why i i was not attracted to this idea that we're about to you know engage in this great release and you know this this sort of breakdown and so forth is that i kind of conflated it in my own mind with sort of green malaise, mm. you know, and, and this crisis fatigue that, you know, after the, you know, killer bees and the Y2K and the, I was just over it. You know, yeah. I could give you a whole list of catastrophes that never came true. Yeah. But, and it, you know, that's a deep structure of, of humanity is just this negativity bias. We're always looking for what's going to happen or what could go wrong. And we privilege the past because we lived. <laughs> we got away with it, but the future, I don't know if I'm going to make it to you know, this afternoon. So it's, you know, I'm anxious about that. So I, I sort of like, I wasn't attracted to this idea that, you know, we really are going to go through a breakdown, but you, you convinced me, 
from, mm. you know, and, and I want to see it in a way that is, um, I, I like the release idea, you know, that there's a, a positive breakdown. Uh, I do get that historically these breakdowns are well charted and they have generally happened with some terrible crisis that caused a lot of death and destruction. And I'd like to think that at our center of gravity, at least in a developed world of orange, uh, where we have become radically pacified, mm -hmm. that we can do this in a way that is not as destructive and violent. And you can actually see hints of this in the thinking of you know, business people mm -hmm. who uh, talk about the process of creative destruction where they need to be actually destroying parts of their own companies uh, as they move forward consciously. Yeah. We actually see it in terms of self-development at a certain stage of development, integral being the stage I'm talking about, where instead of trying to fix or medicate or explain away our pain and suffering, we actually turn towards it. And we want to you know, bring it in and metabolize it uh, consciously, so that we don't have to get whacked over the head unconsciously. So I'm, I'm going to, you know, uh, create a, a, a story where we could do this without too much suffering. Is that unreasonable? One of the things you say, which I love, is is you pointed out the um, you pointed out the way in which the the uh, the hallarchy, in this case, you talked about orange, is is willing to innovate, frankly, through creative destruction, but. I think that actually also speaks to the strategy moving forward that if, because like, if we just think about our own needs, right, our sexual needs at the earlier parts of our being, our security needs, our belonging needs. And if we think about our society in that way, and you say, well, we're, we really want to have creative destruction, but we want to have creative destruction at all levels of the societal stack. And we don't want to have a single instance of, of conservation in our society, well, of course you're gonna get massive allergic blowback. So my argument in The Great Divide was really, look, there's nothing wrong with trying to extend into green from a, from a multicultural point of view and try to bring on some of those green values and, or, and to, as you say, sort of innovated orange with, with creative destruction. But you as you go lower in the, in the need structure of society, you have to be willing to try to increasingly stabilize it for those folks that still identify with those things as their primary mode of yes. being. Nobody wants to have you blow up the, 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 the sort of accepted 300-year religion around which their cultural values, uh, you know, yeah. center or pretend that the border doesn't exist and the national halon is not whole. I mean, all these things are just, they're just, I mean, they're just not smart. It's like just dumb. It's dumb strategy. It's dumb policy. Why would you do that? So the more we can try to shore up those earlier structures, the more you get the, the, the positive being able to extend progressively the other, the, the new emergent structures. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's like, it's basic integral theory. That right. We transcend and we include as we right. transcend. So, and, and clearly in the last, you know, few decades at the, you know, progressive end of the spectrum, the green and, and uh, you know, high orange part of the spectrum, we thought we were going to be able to just move on. Mm. And, and, you know, I left Western Pennsylvania when I was 20. And I didn't think that I needed to include any of that. Right. You know, and not so fast, people. And, and my argument in the great divide was largely that, you know, while, while a lot of us were, were still doing okay economically in the globalized or globalizing, you know, cosmopolitan world, we were blind to it because we looked around and says, well, what's the problem? I mean, exactly. yeah, healthcare is getting more expensive. Education is getting more expensive, but you know, I'm in Austin, I'm in Boulder, I'm in, I'm in San Francisco. Like I'm winning. Yeah. And you even point out in your paper, and I thought it was brilliant that the, the, even the right was willing to take the deal. Sure. Uh, that, you know, okay, multicultural, then yeah. TV's left, that, you know, the whole culture is left as long as the economic piece worked out. And now they're not, they're getting shafted from both ends. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's just not acceptable. And I think that's right on. 
And, and where it gets really interesting to your point about what this next 10 or 15 years looks like in terms of disruption and what the release is and the policies. I mean, you know, again, back to, back to uh, automation. I mean, you know, people don't realize that actually it's not really in the final analysis a war with China or Mexico manufacturing wise that have, that have stripped our jobs. It's actually automation. It's machines. It's, it's, it's robotics. It's the robots that have taken the jobs in manufacturing. Now, for me, this is where I become a little more right-leaning, and I say, well, that's not fundamentally a problem because, you know, give the people the freedom to move into a different job. But what I do think we've really screwed up in this country is, and I, this is where I think the, a center politician should go in this coming election cycles, they should say, look, we're going to invest a trillion dollars, not just in infrastructure, we're going to invest another trillion dollars in human infrastructure. We're going to invest a human a trillion dollars in human capital. We want our folks in Pennsylvania. We want our folks in Ohio. We want our folks wherever to have more of the best training for the best jobs in solar, in advanced manufacturing, in the industries of the future. By the way, China is doing all of this. China mm -hmm. has actually done exactly this because they have a very, very good concerted industrial policy. Mm -hmm. aligns with their educational strategy. Um, and you got to invest in the human capital. And I know. Is this where autocracy beats democracy? What's that? Is this where autocracy beats democracy? Or there's, you know, I in mean, a lot it, of ways, it, yes. It kind of does. Uh, I mean, their, their turn's coming. They're going to have a significant problem, I think, in the next 20, 25 years. Um, as 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 their growth rates sort of stabilize and they you know they have a debt overhang and i mean you know xi jinping's on it he knows he, he sees very clearly the problems they have which is why they've you know made them he's made the moves that they have but i think i think their turn's coming and ultimately i believe in the united states not because i'm a nationalist um but because i think that our i think our rule of law i think that our, our later stage of evolutionary development actually in the long run will prove to be more adaptive, yeah. more resilient. Yeah. No. Well, and that's sort of, that's sort of the good news, bad news of, of today's headlines, I think. Right. I mean, you know, there's a lot of liberals out there who are celebrating, uh, you know, Mueller's indictments, Manafort and Papadopoulos and Gates uh, being brought in. And, you know, I think it's important for, for everyone liberal or otherwise to remember today is actually sort of a, a, a black mark. In American history, this is this is painful. This is sad. Uh, this is tragic, and we shouldn't be too quick to celebrate. However, the other side of that is what we're seeing right now is is actually two things. We're seeing both the inherent resiliency that our system still does have. Now, Trump supporters are going to call that resiliency the deep state, right? But I think we can probably have a, a more interesting conversation about that we still have the resiliency. And the other piece of the good news of that is this is pointing out all, you know, Rob, I thought it was brilliant earlier when you're talking about sort of all the ways that, that we haven't caught up to sort of the modern needs and sort of the, the vicissitudes of, our, of the modern era. We're still, you know, living under a contract that was largely based on amber technologies. And now we're starting to see, whoa, what happens when informational technologies uh, come into play, but the structure of our civilization hasn't adapted to sort of those new technologies in any way, and then we just get completely blown out. So that's sort of the good news, bad news of, of, of what I see happening today, what I see unfolding right now is, yes, America is still here. We still have the resiliency. We're proving, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Jeff and I were talking about how Trump in a lot of ways is sort of the anti-fascist vaccine booster shot that we all needed has the surface features of, of the illness, but not the, the DNA yeah. that needs to actually affect the system. Um, so that, you know, there's, there's some good news associated with that, but again, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, we need to be careful about not, not celebrating today's reports for the wrong reason. Mm. I think that the real opportunity here is, is, a confirmation of the resilience that, you know, for the last year, a lot of us hoped that this country still had. Well, it's bearing out, yep, we, we still have this resilience, at least in a legal sense, right? We can still prosecute these, these obvious transgressions. And we have the opportunity of being able to sort of, you know, it's being rubbed right in our faces, the limitations and the glaring flaws of our system that really, really do need to be modernized. And I think the, the hope here is that 
the Trump administration is putting so much pressure on that springboard that we're actually going to be able to enact some of those adaptations sort of once we're on the other side of this river. Assuming the other side of this river. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I would just point out that, um, this is using some of your thinking too, Rob, is that the, the, um, it's the idea of one country interfering with the politics of another is not new. Not at all. Uh, we have radio free Europe. We, you know, it just goes back to, you know, disinformation in the days of Alexander the Great. Uh, but what's new is this interconnected world where we, everybody has a cell phone and um, everybody can communicate with everybody. And so we have, uh, this new kind of insidious uh, in- infection uh, of our culture by an enemy. And um, yeah, and so, you know, we're just trying to get our arms around that. And today is, uh, you know, a, a first stab at doing that. And, and, and just to add a layer onto that, in many ways, aided and abetted by our own big data industries. Yeah, exactly. Our and, own industries, and, 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 and apparently, you know, a, a, a presidential candidate. That's right. Indeed. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, you make a really good point, Corey, about about us not really ha- knowing how to regulate twenty first century technologies yet, and and the technology innovation curve is now moving so fast. You you almost have no choice but to regulate them years behind whatever their their latest problem creating effect is because they move a hell of a lot faster than the regulatory bodies ever can. And we just simply don't have the prudence to slow down and, and, and do this stuff um, with, with any more prescience or wisdom. Um, I mean, gene editing, look at gene editing. I can, I can buy a CRISPR and gene edit in my garage now. I mean, so there's, this is a real problem in the social media space in particular, the, the nature of accelerated feedbacks, meaning I can get information now being to my phone every 19 minutes, anytime there's something breaking or that reinforces my, my, my bias, whatever it might be like the, the, the nature of accelerated feedbacks going from, you know, months or weeks now down to minutes. I don't think we have fully processed what that does to the nature of the belief structure of the brain and how it creates silos, how it creates echo chambers, how it creates the, an absolute abhorrence to anything that is outside of that echo chamber. And, and the way that's going to affect our politics, I mean, we're seeing it, it's just ugly. No, it's, it's, uh, it, it's like human beings have you know, certain needs are just built into the deep structures of being human, food calories, sex, uh, communication, relationships. And now we're just buried in all of it. Mm. I mean, you know, our biggest problem with food is that we have too many calories. Yeah. I mean, what an amazing problem when you consider human history, where it was about finding calories. And sometimes you didn't. And sometimes the whole culture did. Uh, sex, uh, you know, you can have a certain kind of sex that your brain recognizes as such with, you know, 10 people in a half hour mm-hmm. with porn. And, and, and now even uh, communication itself. I mean, I can communicate with the most interesting people in, you know, the needles in the haystack that just ring my chimes uh, anytime I want. And you're right. It's like we have, we're, we're, in, we're gorging mm. on all of it in a way that is unhealthy. And, you know, I think at some point we get hip to that. I mean, we can see that at least in the leading edge of culture, uh, people are healthier. I mean, they, they're, they're less overweight. It's, it's, it's like, who was it that's, he got in a lot of trouble for saying it, but it was true, is that America is the one country where the poor people are fat, <laughs> you know? Uh, and it's, there's truth to that. Uh, it's, it's, you know, there's, it's, you, you, at some point you get able to control that appetite. And a lot of people are working on the insidious downsides of porn. Mm-hmm. You know, 
And, uh, you know, these, these communities on Reddit where these young guys are, you know, they can't function with a real person. And so, you know, they're, they're working on it and they're, it's interesting to see. And, and, and then just communication itself. I mean, I think of when I moved into this house, this is the, I moved into my house just over 11 years ago. And so I can use, use it as a marker. I can remember I didn't really carry my cell phone. And now I can't imagine not carrying my cell phone. You know, 10, 11 years is less than a blink of an eye in human history. And look at us. Yeah. It's really something. So. I often, I often think one of, the, one of the zones we don't pay enough attention to in, uh, in integral uh, from an integral post-metaphysics point of view is zone seven. And, and a lot of what we're talking about is the changes in zone seven, the, the interior of the lower right quadrant. Um, if you look at what, what's happening in gerrymandering, for example, um, or, or the rules or not that regulate gerrymandering or campaign finance, for example, um, th- this is zone seven we're talking about. And uh, that this is a huge deal because if you can change those rules you can then change the way representative government functions and the way that money works within the system and so all your feedbacks there again get screwed up so now you know so all of this stuff and you're talking about you know you're talking about the 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 social technologies or whatever so all of these things are changing the structure of our lives because this zone seven rules are changing and we don't, you know, we don't spend enough time, I think, looking at those things in a holistic way in that zone. Explain that zone. I've never been, you know, a a master of the zones. Well, okay. So in the lower right quadrant, we have something like, uh, you know, the, the road network where I get in my car and I drive to the, I drive to the store and, um, and the lower right quadrant is the exterior of the collective. The exterior okay. of the collective. So it's things that we can see. It's things that are sort of live in the commons in one sense. I mean, we could, we could spend a lot of time getting into the nuances, but it's a perspective in our own being that we can take on the places that are exterior in our collective. They're exterior to us and they, they are, are in the collective. So we think about our social systems, we think about economic and legal systems, we think about the networks, information networks, telecommunication networks, et cetera. Um, but if we just think about the road structure, we think about the road structure going to work or going to the library. So we're driving on the roads, right? But why, when I approach this red shiny thing, uh, do I stop? Why do I do that? Right? Why do I do that? I do that because in zone seven, which is the interior of this network system, the interior of this network system, there's a rule that says you really should stop when you come to a red light. Why? Because chances are a lot higher. If I don't, I die. And the person that's turning across the lane on a green light dies. So what we do is we develop these, these, internal rule structures for systems because systems need a certain kind of rule structuring. Now, some of those rules are in fact, you know, you can actually look at them like laws on the books or whatever, but there's also a whole bunch of systems that have interior rule structures, which are much harder to discern, like the, you know, biochemical rules or, or the ways that molecular molecules might assemble in the rule structures there and in, in, in a network of organs or whatever. So, all this to say that that systems follow rules that um, we really we really tweak at our own peril to the degree that we're not we're not awake to the ways in which these things have follow-on consequences. So, in something like gerrymandering or Citizens United, where now corporate speech is, is basically unlimited in the political realm, I mean, it's going right. to have an impact on the way that economic interests can then really drown out everyone else you know, in the whole political cycle. And it's going to allow for that suboptimization to occur, meaning yeah. that the, the part being the capital interests or the corporations or the lobbyists now have this unfettered ability to capture the whole and put it to service on their own behalf. Um, and I just think that that's, we've, we've not spent enough time examining that. Um, yeah. a, it doesn't seem that hard in a way, does it? I mean, the, the, this polarization is so financed by the, uh, uh, 
you know, moneyed interests and, you know, gerrymandering just absolutely uh, feeds polarization. Uh, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to th- sort of fix it up. Uh, but politically, it is, it's going to take, a, I think, another couple blows to the system before we get serious enough to do something. Well, like and that. that's why, actually, if you look at the ma- if you look at the significant game-changing evolutionary structures that emerge, they often emerge in zone seven. They emerge in the rule structure of, of society or, 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 or inner cooperative entities and in networks, whether it be United Nations and the Security Council or, or those kinds of things. These are mm-hmm. an incredibly uh, important area uh, for us to become more attuned. And so you asked another reason why I think Integral is is underempowered, it's because we actually have not had that many people, that many experts who are proficient at a world global governance level in zone seven. It's tended to, the, the, the entire movement has tended to have a preference for the upper left, as we know, and, and right. developmentalism. Yeah. Uh, the, the development of the upper quadrants, but not as much the evolution of the lower quadrants. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, such, it's such an awesome point, Rob. And what's, what's fascinating to me is how skilled these folks are at getting at those zone seven and manipulating, changing the patterns within that, that zone seven space by using a mastery of zone four, particularly the, you know, the far right, you know, side of the political spectrum are masters of controlling the Overton window determining what we're allowed to talk about and what we're not allowed to talk about in any, at any given moment, whether it's, oh, there was just, a, you know, a, another huge massacre. Now is not the time to talk about regulating guns, right? And they, they, they master this. Now, the irony of that is that, you know, that, that, that differentiation of zone four and zone three in the lower left quadrant was one of post-modernity's greatest contributions of the 20th century. Just, just a, the simple. Explain what it is, Corey. Just in case people like me aren't following it. Yeah. So the the inner and the outer of the lower left quadrant. So the you know the easiest way to talk about it is the inner of the lower left quadrant is basically the lower the, left quadrant being the interior of the collective. That's and that right. So the we space. Our, our subjective intersubjective agreements. That's right. So you know, right now we're engaged in this in this conversation. There's a soupy sort of frothy mix of perspectives that feedback on each other, and that, all of that is the in, the the interior of the lower left quadrant, right? Zone four is sort of all of those unseen and largely unspoken rules and parameters, mutually agreed upon elements of shame, elements of bias, Got all culturally inherited framing that that creates the container within which we have our soupy conversation right so on sort of a massive national level you know there's something called the overton window which talks about you know you're allowed to talk about anything sort of within this range right uh for the longest time socialism was too far outside of this range and uh ayn rand level libertarianism was also outside of the overton window so you can't talk about those those ideas in a way that people are going to actually take seriously. Every once in a while, you get someone who comes along who, for whatever reason, has the charisma, has the skill, has the influence, whatever it might be. Sheer brute strength. Yeah, brute strength, absolutely, to actually swing that Overton window. And Donald Trump, more successfully than anyone else I've seen in my lifetime, has completely swung and dominated that Overton window. And the rest of his party is there to sort of – capitalize off of all the things that we once were not allowed to talk about, but now is open season, right? So one of the things that was outside of the Overton window for the last 50 years due to, for example, political correctness was these sort of flame wars between white America and black America, where we sort of had an agreed upon cold war, you know, sort of a linguistic cold war where I'm not going to say these things about you. You're not going to say these things about me. And, you know, we sort of, other than stand-up comics, stand-up, you know, black stand-up comics can make fun of white folks, but white stand-up comics can't make fun of black folks. And that was okay. There was, that was agreed upon. And then suddenly within the last two years or so, that Overton window shifted dramatically. Uh, those barriers were demolished, and now you know the scab is being pulled off the wound in a lot of ways. So, 
you know, what I really see here is a mastery, a, a complete mastery. Uh, liberals are getting trounced in terms of being able to simply control the narrative. Liberals never are capable of controlling that narrative for any extended amount of time. And they always just, you know, basically play the game within the rule set that's determined by the right. Yeah, we've talked about this before, but I think part of that is, 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 is a little bit of the complexity of, of the progressive movement. By, by virtue of it being progressive, it's going to be a little bit further ahead in terms of the complexity it's trying to make sense of and, and, and digest. And that complexity just eats it alive because, you know, it, it tries to take all this nuance where, whereas the fat part of the bell curve in the population is, is not going to want a whole lot of nuance and they're going to want a, a sound bite. And the right is fantastic yep. at reducing things to actionable sound bites, which have the resonance of emotional truth, even if they have no amount of intellectual truth whatsoever. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But no, I, would, that's, that's I would also put on the table that if you're a, a, a conservative uh, you know, right-leaning uh, traditionalist in the in you know outside of Boulder and all of these places, uh, it feels like the Overton window has really been suffocating you too. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. and that the left has actually created a, a rule set that is. Oh hegemonic. yeah, oh yeah. No, they have yeah. their own way of going about it. It just seems to. Uh, irritate the body politic more than regulate it, right? So the left goes about it by talking about white privilege and fat shaming and microaggressions. It basically is trying to lay down this new layer of shame, a higher layer of shame. Which is actually progress. That they deconstructed, which absolutely can be progress. But if that body body politic is resistant to that shame, right, it's not going to get internalized. You know, F you. Well, and also, I mean, if you see what's happening on college campuses, it is absolutely leading to a new form of totalitarianism. Totally. On the left. It's it's an intellectual totalitarianism. And the left, the the young left, is completely undereducated about the the philosophical and historical roots of, of where they come from. And frankly, it's really deleterious effects. I mean, I agree with Jordan Peterson here. Everybody should be reading Gulag Archipelago about the, the Soviet prison camps in the mid part of the 20th century. It was by Solzhenitsyn. And it describes how a left-leaning authoritarianism is literally murderous, uh, taken to its logical conclusion. And so this is a moment where where sophisticated and mature liberals need to be yep. standing up, and they are to some degree, yeah. and shouting down, actually not even shouting down, just saying simply, I'm sorry, that is not going to work on our college campuses. Let me help you with the developmental differentiations you kids need. Yep. And if you don't like it, well, let me tell you something. I'm going to show you what power looks like, and power is not an ugly word. I'm sorry you've dissociated from power with your postmodern subtext, but I'm about to show you what power looks like. And that's it. And, and, yeah. and they need an education in these differentiations and, and power is what has to do it. And, but yeah. the administrators are running away from using yep. power because they've also ingested the subtext. Yep. Yep. No, that's absolutely right. Rob, it's, it's, you know, I've, I, I've joked a lot of times how, you know, Ken wrote Boomeritis and I think it was 1999. And I, I read it when it came out and, you know, it, it was a fun book. I mean, it, you know, it's probably Ken's worst written book, but it was fun. And, uh, you know, but I remember reading it and my impression was, man, this guy is so good at hyperbole. Jesus, you know, like, like I love these straw men, but no one actually talks like this, Ken. No one actually believes the type of, you know, sort of straw men arguments that you're, that you're creating here. And then only 15 years later, I look at the, you know, sort of the college, you know, college level liberalism. And it's obvious to me, he, Ken was not exaggerating. And in fact, boomeritis has now metastasized into millennialitis. And it is so much worse than any of Ken's, you know, mm-hmm. greatest exaggerations in the late 90s about what, you know, what this culture was turning into. And, and that, you know, and, and largely what we're seeing is, you know, same as it always was, right? I mean, and during the Vietnam War, the average protester who was wearing, you know, was, you know, carrying those signs was not actually coming from a green altitude. They were just showing up to get laid and to cause mayhem and all of that. And that's largely what we're seeing with sort of these, 
you know, ideas and ideals that are currently cropping up in the left. Most of them, you know, the concept of white privilege is massively important and a massively nuanced uh, idea that requires a very nuanced way of talking to people about it. And it's being miswielded, right? So I think the effect that that has is when Bernie Sanders talks about, you know, let's, we need to, you know, create access to community college for everyone. That sounds great to the liberals, but to the conservatives, they hear, oh, great, we're going to have, you know, millions of new gender studies majors. What is that going to do for our country? And that's why I actually love sort of the, the education with the emphasis on retraining idea. That that's actually a really good compromise between the left and the right. Let's make education more widely available, but let's make sure that education actually leads to the type of productivity and the type of skill development that our, that our country really needs right now. All right, guys. I think we've said it all. <laughs> Did we solve this? We... <laughs> I think we're, we got it all sorted out. All right. Uh, uh, I mean, clearly this conversation goes on. And the great thing about Integral Live and the Daily Evolver Live and what we're doing here is that we can continue it. And so I uh, really appreciate, Rob, you being with us today. Uh, Corey, yeah, thanks, always man. a pleasure, my brother. Thank, thanks for having me on, guys. It was uh, it was a lot of fun, and we'll we'll definitely be doing more of this in detail at the uh, at the event, and that should be fun. R- r- you know, a lot of ideas and and perspectives rubbing up against each other, and I think we'll all wa- walk out a lot lot smarter. Yeah, I'm excited to do this conference. It's uh, you know b- to bring a, a bunch of integral uh, uh, sympathizers together. And to you know, talk about exactly what we're talking about and, and move the ball is a, a great privilege. It's the What Now Conference coming up over New Year's and check it out. All right, gang. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.